This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. I didn't know after singing all of that if I would have a voice left to preach. That was some good music this morning. But whether you're here in the room or in the pavilion today, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. I cannot wait uh, to share with you the truth from this text this morning. I believe it will be helpful and encouraging for you. And uh, my prayer that, as I just prayed a minute ago, that you would see the gospel, the old story, in a new and a fresh way. Have you ever wondered why it is that every generation seems to be drawn to the same fairy tales, the same stories, generation after generation, young and old, all telling these stories, retelling these stories, making these movies and remaking these movies. And all of them, if you just think at their basic core, are very much like a Hallmark movie. It's the same story, just different characters in a different setting. But there's this story that we have told over and over and over again, these fairy tale stories. And we love them. Not only just kids, but adults love them as well. We have found ways to make them both kid-friendly and adult-friendly. Disney tells us the kid's story. And then we find ways through science fiction and superheroes to take the same story and to make it a little bit more appealing to others. Now, There's some obvious reasons why we like these stories. I mean, I think for boys, there are kingdoms to be defended. There are battles to be fought. There are princesses to rescue. There are dragons to be slayed and moats to be crossed. I mean, this is just everything in us just loves this. And for the ladies, there's the hope of a princess that one day is going to come, a prince that is one day going to come. There, there is the belief that something magical is going to happen. There are beautiful dresses and there are horses to be rode. I am a little concerned that my daughters have watched so many Hallmark movies with the same storyline that if at the moment in which someone proposes to them, it does not snow, they might say no actually to the proposal. I'm gonna prepare these men with a snow machine just so everything's exactly like it was supposed to be. We love these stories and they capture our heart and our attention. And listen, it's not just because for the guys there's something exciting and for the ladies there's this hope of a prince that's going to come. There actually is something deeper. There's a lot of research that has been done on the psychology of of fairy tales and why we love this story so much. But the simple reason is this, is because there's something in us that longs to be a part of that story. We, we want to pursue and we want to be pursued. We want to win battles and we want to be won. There is something about those stories that draws us in. And the reason is, is because God has put that story in our heart. That that story has been placed in our heart by the God who created us because that story of being rescued is the story of the Bible. And it's the story of Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a wedding song. It's a love song. We see it from the prescript there. Do you see those words right at the beginning of 45 before the verses? It says to the choir master, we know it's a song. 
with a pleasing theme, it says in verse one, but it says to the choir master, according to the lilies. Now we have no idea what that means, according to the lilies, but the lilies stand for spring and purity and beauty. So even at that moment, it gives this kind of feel of something new and fresh and exciting. It's a maskil, which means it's a song written for instruction. It's not just to be sung, it's to teach us something. Of the sons of Korah, here it is, a love song. Now, maybe this is just the way that my mind works and some of my deep down desires from when I was younger. But when I think about the prescript here, it sounds to me like a host of a radio show introducing a new song to us. Now tonight on Love Songs. We have a new one by the Sons of Korah. It's called Your Throne, O God, is Forever. So get the record button ready for that mixtape. Here it is, the new love song for you on, you know, whatever. I'd love that. I've always kind of wanted to do that. But that's kind of how you feel. It's like this introduction, there's a new love song coming and everyone's excited. And, and uh, the stage is even set more with verse one. It says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So the tone and the theme are both there, that there's someone writing the song. And the occasion is the king is going to get married. And the song is going to be sung at the wedding. And this person writing this is so overwhelmed with emotion, so overcome by joy, that they're about to burst forth from their heart. There's just this overwhelming desire to sing this song of love and joy. And so the whole feel is that of celebration. It's a beautiful moment. It's a wedding song. Now, the reality is, is this song is divided up into a couple of sections. In the first few verses, it tells us about the king, the groom, who is preparing for that wedding day. And then starting in verse 10 all the way to verse 15, it tells us about the bride, the soon-to-be princess, who also is preparing us for that day. Now, the first thing it wants us to do is it wants us to picture this. Remember, this is poetry. It's poetic language. So the goal is for not just for you to get the truths. It's for you to imagine this. It's painting this picture of a man getting ready for the wedding day and the bride getting ready as well. And it paints this picture of both of them. Now, the first few verses show us about this king, this groom who is getting ready to be married. Listen to these verses and imagine this with me in verse 2. It says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. I keep waiting for that verse to be quoted on an anniversary card for me. It hasn't happened yet, but it's a little hint. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured up on your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before and beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. From ivory palaces and stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. It's describing for us this, this man, this king, this groom who's about to be married. The first thing it tells us is this is a man of commanding presence. When he walks in the room, you notice that he is there. Everything about him is staggering and eye-catching. 
It tells us that in verse two. When it says you are the most handsome of the sons of men, some translate this, you are the most excellent of men, which may even be a better translation. It's not simply commenting on his physical features, although it is. It's saying this is a strikingly handsome man, but it's saying that everything about him seems above ordinary. Everything about him is excellent. It tells us that his speech is powerful and eloquent. It comes with authority and grace. Grace is poured upon your lips. When he speaks, people listen. And when people listen, they learn that he is an eloquent communicator, not only a good-looking man and a man that is noticeable, but he's a man who speaks with incredible grace. It also says that God has blessed him forever. That idea of being blessed here means that he's obviously and uniquely gifted in many ways. I don't know how else to say it other than the fact that when he walks into the room, you know it. He's got a presence about him. And when he speaks, it even grows more. Everything about him from his head to his toe, from the way that he speaks, the way that he looks, he's got a commanding presence. But not only that, it tells us that he's got military strength. Look at verse 3. He's got a sword on his thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Now, it's not just that he has a sword on his thigh because he's royalty and part of his outfit to get married contains a sword. No, he has a sword and he knows how to use it. When it says that he's a mighty one, it means that he's a hero, that he has fought battles and he's won battles. He knows how to use the sword. Look at what it says in verse five. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the people fall under you. This is a man who has been to battle. He's won battles. There's stories about him. There's legends about him. Kids get around the playground and they talk about the stories of the battles that the king has won. They talk about his commanding presence and his military strength. It even says this. It says that splendor and majesty are his. He is a warrior king who is ready to do battle. He goes to battle, he wins, he defeats his enemies, he hits the target, he's a beast. Look what else it says. He says he's also a man of, of noble character. So he not only fights battles, he fights the right battles. Look at this in verse four. In your majesty, ride out victoriously. And I love this phrase right here. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. It's one thing to fight battles and win them. It's another thing to fight the right battles and to win them. This is a man who upholds the cause of the needy and he fights for the cause of the poor. He defends those who cannot defend themselves. He stands for the right causes, cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He is fighting for the oppressed. He's selfless in his battles. He's not fighting for himself or for his own kingdom. He's seeing those who need his help. And he is risking his very life as a man of noble character to help those who cannot help themselves. He's a man, as it tells us later, that loves truth and he loves righteousness and he hates what is evil and he sees injustice and it bothers him so bad that he is willing to go out to battle to fight any injustice that he sees. This is the man, a man of commanding, commanding presence, military strength and noble character. Now, as we think of him so far, I don't know what you picture, but you might picture him being a bit stoic with that chiseled jaw and that perfectly built body and that sword on his thigh and the strength and the tales that are told about all of the military battles that he's won. And you might think that he's strong and mighty and handsome, but a bit of a dud. 
At least I'm kind of hoping he is. You don't want this guy who's got everything. But it tells us that in the midst of all of those things, he's also a man of deep abiding joy. He's a joyful king. Now look at the next verses. In six through nine, there's all these words that show that he is in fact a king. He has a throne in verse six. He has a scepter and he has a kingdom. In verse seven, God has anointed him. In verse eight, he's got robes that are fragrant. He's in ivory palaces surrounded by stringed instruments. So he is certainly of nobility. He is a king. He lives in a palace. But look at what it says in verse seven. And I love this phrase so much because it gives us a different idea of this man. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That little phrase in the Hebrew means this. He is a man of super abundant joy. He's got gladness. That there's something that radiates from him that is joyful, deep within. He's not just faking it with a smile in the presence of others. When you're around this man, you experience joy. You feel the joy that comes out of him. He radiates with a gladness. There's something calming and peaceful about this man because he has been anointed with a super abundant joy that has been given him by the Lord. And part of the reason for this joy is it's his wedding day. I mean, he's got this outfit on because he's about to go to be married. And then as we find this man described for us and displayed of noble character, this man of a commanding presence, the man who is a military warrior and overflows with joy, then it begins to describe the groom, I mean, the, the bride. Look what it says in the following verses, starting in verses 10 through 15, it describes this one who is soon to be a princess, the one who is waiting on the groom to come. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions, her bridesmaid are there following behind her. With joy and gladness, she has it too. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Now verses 10 through 12 are really, really neat. I would have never imagined to find something this helpful right here in the middle of Psalm 45 in these verses. I have four daughters, and Lord willing, someday, if God sees fit, they're going to get married. And if they do, I would imagine it would be my responsibility to say something to them in that moment. And I would have never thought that I would find some instruction for the wedding day in Psalm 45. But what happens in those verses is as the soon-to-be bride is preparing herself, dressed in robes, putting the gold on, her father walks into the room. The bridesmaids are there, and they have just a little quiet moment before everything begins. And it tells us in verse 10 that the father then begins to speak to his daughter, and he gives her some words of wisdom before the wedding. It starts there in verse 10. It says this, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. He's saying, hey, daughter, listen, listen to me in this moment. I want you to stop in the midst of the chaos and just listen to this instruction. And he gives her three practical pieces of instruction and wisdom for this day, which you need to listen to because this is going to be important for us in just a moment. The first thing he says is this. He says, don't look back. Don't look back. 
He says, forget your people and your father's house. In other words, you've got to leave and cleave. Don't hold on to us. Don't hold on to your family. We love you. We have enjoyed having you, but we have raised you for this purpose so that in this moment you would leave us and you would not cling to us anymore, but you would cling to your husband. So don't hold on too tightly to us. You must release us and let go. Don't look back. The second piece of instruction is to then honor your husband and look to him. The king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now this is talking about the king and queen, but the relevance to us in this moment would be this, is that we no longer to this bride say, hold on to the past, but let go of that and now cling to your husband. Look to him and honor him, love him and respect him. Give him your attention and give him your affection and give him your honor. I have hopefully as a father taught you how to honor and to love and to respect. And so it is now take your attention away from me as your father and turn all of that affection and tension upon your husband. Look to him, love him, honor him, and bless him. And the final piece of instruction is this, is to look forward with great hope. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the richest of the people. He's speaking a blessing upon her. I know that days will get difficult, but I also believe that God has good things in store for you. So hold on to hope. Believe that God is going to use this marriage to do something great. Stop looking back. Don't hold on to us anymore. Honor your husband and then look to the future, believing that God is going to do good things. Have hope in what God is going to do. And then after that precious little moment where a father speaks to his daughter, preparing her for marriage, he then describes her. Look at what it says. She's glorious, the princess in her chamber. She's getting ready with robes interwoven with gold, many colored robes. She's led to the king. Her virgin companions follow behind her, and she's filled with joy and gladness as they lead along in this great procession to the palace of the king. Now, before we go any further, let me give you a little background that's going to help us to understand and bridge the gap between what this meant for them and what this means for us. In ancient times, the first thing that happened before a marriage was betrothal. Now, betrothal is similar to engagement, but in some ways not at all, because a betrothal was a covenant that was made between two families. So one family would get together and another family would get together. And it wasn't necessarily an arranged marriage. It was just these two families were making a covenant with one another, an unbreakable covenant that this son was going to marry this daughter. It was much more serious than an engagement today. It was, in fact, a legal contract that would not be broken. Now, what would happen is this betrothal would take place, a guarantee of the marriage that is going to come. As a matter of fact, this was such a significant binding contract that even before the marriage was consummated or the ceremony was had, they were considered in the eyes of the people, husband and wife, this was as good as done. And then would come the wedding day. And on the wedding day, the groom would prepare himself at his house. He would get ready and all of his friends and family are around him and all of his buddies are there in his house. And then at the bride's house, she was preparing with all of her bridesmaids and she was getting ready and there's a lot of excitement in that house. And here's what would happen. And I have seen this happen. I was a part of a wedding in Serbia in which I experienced this exact thing. At some point when the man is ready, he's going to leave his house and he's going to take with him his friends and his family and all of his groomsmen. And they're going to walk to the bride's house. 
And she's gonna be adorned and ready and she's gonna be all made up and all of her family and bridesmaids are waiting and they're gonna see off into the distance the groom is coming to get his bride. He will then go to her house and he will take her from her house with all of the friends and family and symbolic of the fact that she is leaving this house and coming a part of this house, they would then in great procession through the streets march to his house where according to how much wealth they had, they would feast for days. We love that kind of story, don't we? What an incredible picture of the groom going to rescue his bride and he gets her in all of the fanfare going through the streets, bringing her to his house in which all of them would celebrate. And that's exactly the picture of Psalm 45. He's getting ready and she's getting ready. And each one of the houses is filled with joy and excitement and the king is going to leave and he's gonna to come to take his bride and he is going to bring her with all of his family to his house where they will feast. And there's even a blessing put upon them in this moment in verses 16 and 17. It says, in the place of your father shall be your sons. God is gonna give you children from this union and they will rule and they will make them princes in all of the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. It really is like a fairy tale and we love it. And the reason we love it is because God has created us to love it. God has put in our hearts, every single one of us, a desire to be a part of some story like this. And listen to me, as strange as this may sound, this is not simply a wedding song. This is our wedding song. This is not just their story. This is our story. And we know that because Psalm 45 is what we call a messianic psalm. What that means is a psalm that is not only written about that king in that circumstance, but it is a psalm that is written about the coming king, Jesus Christ. It is partially momentarily fulfilled here. It will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we know this for many reasons. I told you a few weeks ago, as we looked at one of our messianic Psalms, that anytime you see the king mentioned in the book of Psalms, it's certainly about that king, but even more so, it's about King Jesus. We're always looking at the king in the Psalms and saying, what is this telling us about Jesus? But we know for other reasons. Look at verse six. It refers to this king as a man and God. Your throne, O God, speaking to the king, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. That's not a mere man. There is only one person who is fully man and fully God, and that is Jesus Christ. We know from verse six, it's pointing us to Jesus. And then look at the end of verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Well, it can't be this king because we don't remember his name right now. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever and ever. Well, there's only one king whose name will be praised forever and ever and ever, and it's King Jesus. But if that wasn't enough to show us that this is speaking of Jesus, we could turn to Hebrews chapter one, where the author of Hebrews is trying to make one point in Hebrews one, and it's the point of the song we just sang a moment ago. It is simply this, Jesus is better. He's better than angels, he's better than prophets, Jesus is better. And as the author of Hebrews is making his case for the superiority of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus, he goes to Psalm 45. And he quotes these verses about being specifically referring to Jesus when he says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, Jesus. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author of Hebrews knew that this was written about Jesus. The point is this, is that Jesus is, in fact, the ultimate king who is going to come and rescue his bride. Jesus is the one of commanding presence. Jesus is the one of noble character. Jesus is the one who is a mighty warrior. Jesus is the one who is a joyful king. Every verse of Psalm 45 is pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is the king. You say, well, well, what about us? Well, we're the bride. I mean, it's very clear from passages like Ephesians 5 and Romans 19 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that the church, those who have trusted Jesus Christ, are in fact the bride of Christ. Now, this may be a bit confusing because in the first coming of Jesus, we don't see Jesus in his commanding presence. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that Jesus in his first coming had no physical appearance for which we would notice him. He did not come in majesty. He did not come in a way that he was noticeable. There was nothing special about his physical appearance. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish man. But the reason is, is because in his first coming, he came as a suffering servant. He came to rescue his bride. Jesus came because he saw that his bride was under the curse of sin and Satan and hell. And Jesus came from heaven to be among us and to be one of us. So that by dying on a cross and living a perfect life, he could take up on himself all of the sins of his bride. That he could die once and for all for every sin that you've ever committed. So that the punishment and the penalty for your sin could be taken away in one moment and placed upon Jesus Christ. And his perfect life could be then credited to your account. And the Bible says this. That if you will come to a place in your life in which you acknowledge that you're a sinner and there is nothing you can do to get yourself to heaven on your own merit. And the only hope that you have of being saved is by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Making him the Lord and Savior of your life. And you call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says you will be saved. You'll be saved from the curse of sin and death and hell. In that one instant, by calling upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Now listen. 2 Corinthians 11 says this. That at that moment in which you choose to trust and follow Jesus Christ, you are betrothed to Christ. What does that mean? It means that there is a covenant that is made in heaven between you and God, an unbreakable covenant. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, there is a covenant that is made unbreakable. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He guarantees through the death of his son and the power of his resurrection that you will be his forever. He calls his own. He calls his sheep and he's never lost one. He will not lose you. The wedding is not yet, but the betrothal has happened at the moment in which you come to Christ. And here's what that means. It means that there will be a day in which the skies will open and the one with commanding presence and the one with noble character and the one who is a mighty warrior will in fact split the skies open and everyone will see him and everyone will notice him. You will know that he has walked into the room. And at that moment, he will split the sky because he is leaving his home to come to his bride's home to get her and to take her with great procession all the way to their eternal new home in heaven. That's what's going to happen to you. 
If you are in fact the bride of Christ, the one, the king of Psalm 45 will come and he will rescue you, he will deliver you, and he will bring you back where you will feast forever and it's what is called the marriage supper of the lamb. That's the marriage ceremony. And then what is true of verses 16 and 17 will be true of you. It says, in place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them as princes in all of the earth. Ephesians 1 says God is gathering together a people for his son, Jesus Christ. And someday when Jesus Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom on earth where we will live with him for all of eternity. And we will rule and reign with him as princes over all the earth. And then what will happen? The name of Jesus Christ will be remembered in all generations and nations will praise you forever and ever and ever. For all of eternity, there will only be one name remembered and it is the name of Jesus Christ, the commanding, noble, warrior king. That he's coming. And he's coming to rescue you, his bride, who he has purchased by his blood. So the question is, well, what do we do till then? Here we are, betrothed to Christ, waiting upon the consummation of all things for that marriage supper of the Lamb. What do we do? Well, we listen to the instruction given the bride. You see, the father walked in and said to the bride, you're about to be married, you're betrothed. Let me tell you what to do while you wait. And it's the exact commands that are given to us. What the Lord says to us as we wait the coming of King Jesus is this, stop looking back. Don't look back. You lived your life of sin, those things you are now ashamed of. Don't hold on to those things anymore. Let go of those things. Turn from those things. And now turn your attention to Jesus Christ. Honor him and love him and give him your faithfulness and your worship. Serve him. Make Jesus the center of your life. And this is not only a one-time commandment, it's a continual commandment. We leave the things of the world and we cling on to Jesus as that which is ultimate and better We acknowledge that there is no life, any life worth living outside of Jesus Christ. So we turn from those things, we cling on to Jesus, and then we look forward with hope. In the midst of every struggle and every heartache and every disappointment, that if you are a part of the bride of Christ, you can be assured of this. The skies will open and the king will come and he will take you and escort you to your eternal home. And you will feast with him forever. That's the promise of Psalm 45. And a passage like this exists for a few reasons. It exists primarily to just get us fired up about Jesus, which I'm hoping that's happening. You're just staring at me this morning. This is really good news. But part of it is just to make us aware of this moment we're in, have this unbreakable covenant with Jesus, and he's going to come back and get us. And we just hold on to hope and get encouraged and confident in Jesus. It is also a call for some of you to get on the right side of Jesus because when he returns, he will come and rescue his bride and those who have not come to faith in him will not be a part of those who are saved forever, but those who are destroyed. And so it is by God's grace, listen to this right now, God has brought you to this place on this day in this moment to hear the truth of the gospel. You can call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, I wanna be saved. And then it exists to call some of you In this moment, as you await the coming of King Jesus, to leave the old junk behind, to hold on to Jesus, to look forward with hope and remain faithful until he comes. 
But however it is that God is stirring in your heart, I pray that for these truths of Psalm 45, you would humble yourselves and respond to him with great hope and anticipation and rejoicing as we praise his name forever and ever. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.